to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you have a hard time focusing? Do you struggle to stay on task? Do you feel like your attention span is getting worse? If you answered yes to any of those questions, this episode is for you. My guest today is Dr. Amishi Jha. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. She's also the author of a new book called Peak Mind, In it, she shares what her research has uncovered about our attention spans, and she explains how you can improve your focus in just 12 minutes a day. Today, she's talking about why it feels like our attention spans have gotten so much worse, the steps we can take to improve our attention, and the benefits that we'll gain when we feel more in control of our minds. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Jaw's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Dr. Amishi Jha on how to improve your attention span so you can grow mentally stronger. Dr. Amishi Jha, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Very excited to be here. So I get a lot of questions from our listeners and from readers. And recently, one of the most common questions I get from people is, how do I improve my focus? So I'm excited to talk to you about your new (laughs) book, Peak Mind, and to help everybody figure out how do we pay attention better? One of the things that struck me in your book is you said you, that most of us miss out on about 50% of our lives these days because we're not paying attention. That's correct. And it is kind of a shocking number. And I would say, you know, it's not necessarily only these days that we have that high percentage. It's probably been throughout human history. As it feels a lot more painful these days because there are so many other ways in which our attention can feel like it's getting derailed. But that number really comes from the internal distractibility of the mind, this notion of mind wandering, which basically means having off-task thoughts when you are engaged in something, in some kind of task. And we know that, for example, um, many things can take us away from the present moment, right? We, we have every intention of doing whatever it is that we're doing in the moment, whether it's reading a book or talking to somebody, et cetera. But often what happens is something in our own mind pulls us away. And it pulls us in a way that is very sort of specific and characteristic of the way the brain operates. So we can either get pulled away by something about the past that's already happened, that something that that is being said reminds us of, of something in the past, or we're lunged into the future where we're thinking about the next thing. And that's what I mean by we're missing the present moment. We're missing half our lives is because we're actually not paying attention to them as they're unfolding. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I used to make fun of my mom because we'd go to the grocery store and as we came out, she'd say, do you remember where we parked the car? And as a kid, I was like, yeah, it's right over there. As an adult now, I find myself stepping out of the grocery store thinking, wait, I have no idea where I parked my car because I wasn't paying attention. I was off thinking about what I was going to do tomorrow, what I was going to buy in the store, something that happened yesterday. My mind is often distracted like that. Absolutely. And, you know, it's very common and it's not, you know, sometimes we can get worried, like, 
I, I describe actually an episode in, in my book where my mother-in-law had this exact same thing happen to her. In fact, it was a little bit even more severe. She got into a car that looked just like her. She got in and tried to turn it on and her key was was working. And you know, and I was like, well, what happened that led you to that particular moment? She had a lot on her mind. She actually forgot her shopping list. So she was kind of rehearsing it. So to know that, you know, when we have episodes like that, it might be that we're not paying attention for very good reasons. Our mind is other places on purpose, uh, which is fine. But we also have to understand that there'll be consequences for that. And sometimes it'll take us a beat longer to find our car, which is fine. And I think it's interesting, too, that you point out that our attention spans probably aren't getting worse. It's just that our phones and our 17 tabs that we have open on our computers are just the outlet that we use. Because I hear from so many people, our attention spans are getting shorter. We can't pay attention. I'm so much more distracted. This is awful. But you argue that we've probably always been this way. Well, so right. At some level, the brain has always been distractible. And that's a design feature and, and a result of successful evolution. If we weren't able to be easily derailed and we were hyper fixated, if we got so focused that nothing else could penetrate our conscious experience, well, probably you're going to get eaten at some point in your, in your evolutionary past because you're so focused on the thing you're doing, you don't notice the predator lurking behind you or the storm approaching or whatever it is. So having that kind of more agile mind that can pivot to something else when when something that is potentially, for example, threatening or interesting or alarming or engaging appears in your environment, that's a good thing. Now, unfortunately, I would say we're being challenged by so many things that have those features, right? If you think about what does pull us away, it's typically things that have those qualities. They're either fear-inducing, enticing, interesting, self-related, or just bright, shiny, fun things that you want to do instead of doing this boring report you've got to finish, right? So there's always this competition with our attention. And it isn't the case that our actual capacity to pay attention has shifted all that much. The smartphone has been around for, what, 15, 20 years. Human evolution doesn't transform at that scale. So no, our attention spans are not shorter. We just have a lot more lures that hijack our attention away. So do you have any practical tips? Let's say, okay, I have to write a boring report. How do I do that? I think sometimes we're tempted to keep the TV on or you have 14 tabs open, your smartphone's next to you. Is there a practical way to try to reduce the amount of distractions that we have without, because I think sometimes if we just sit in a silent room, then our minds wander too and we find ourselves daydreaming. Uh, are there certain ways to set up our environment for success? I think so. I think that the first thing is we could start with the straightforward things that we can do in our external environment. But then, of course, I'm going to land on, and you can also train for it so that you're better at it all the time. So the external things are, for example, if we know that we can willfully direct our attention, and this is something I use the metaphor in, in, in the book and in our work as attention, attentional focus as a, as a flashlight. So we can kind of direct it willfully, decide what we're going to put it on. And wherever it is that we put that directed focus, we get privileged access to that information, more granular information. That's why when we sit down to write a report and we're on our computer and we're focused on that, we can probably do a much better job than we're all over the place. It's just the intrinsic capacity of the mind. But that same flashlight, like I was saying, can get pulled. And that's the distractibility that we were talking about. It can be to the external environment, like the ding or ping of a notification, or our own mind generating alarming, threatening, interesting thoughts that yank us away and pull the flashlight internally. So we know what we're up against. So to start off in terms of the external environment, the first thing is advantage yourself by deciding, having the intention that I'm going to do this task for a set number of minutes, and then try as best as possible to 
limit all the other stuff that you are doing. So don't put yourself in a, what we might call a multitasking context, because frankly, you aren't multitasking. We don't have multiple flashlights. We have one. And what you would put yourself in the position of doing is task switching. So you'd have your attention on the, on the screen, and then you'd have to pivot away when something else pulled you. It could even be another thing on your screen. And then you got to get yourself back. And that just adds to the lag time of being able to reestablish focus. And it frankly makes the whole enterprise fall apart much more quickly. So don't put yourself in an environment as much as possible where you have to multitask, monotask, have that be the intention. And then really watch for how the mind wanders away moment by moment. If you notice that as you are sitting here, and you, you already said this, uh, Amy, that about the internal distractibility, you've, you've done all this right stuff. Your phone's in the other room. All your tabs are off. All you have is you and this open document. All you got to do is write this thing. And then you start noticing the internal distractibility. Well, the first thing to notice is that it occurs because oftentimes we are lost in thought and so compelled by our thoughts that we think, yeah, I know I said I was going to write this report, but I really need to, to plan that vacation for six months from now, right now. Like, I mean, I, this happened to me a lot during the pandemic, by the way. And I think that having these, the tools that we're talking about right now uh, helped me. For example, I remember in the early days of the pandemic, I was in the middle of actually finishing up the book. And at some point, I remember I had this really strong urge that I had to see my mother. It had been like two years and it was a very tricky time to try to get on a plane. Vaccines weren't, hadn't arrived yet. And I started saying, well, you know what? I really want to see her. That tug, that internal tug was so strong that I started looking up renting an RV. Then it turned into buying an RV. Then it turned to into we can get an RV just like two blocks away and go buy it right now. And at some point, I remember like almost wanting to get up from my desk from writing and go run to the other room to tell my husband, we've got to buy an RV. And I kind of laughed at myself of like the power of our mind to hijack us is very strong. So anyway, I just kind of reacquainted myself with my own tools, which were notice moment to moment what's happening. I let that process go on for way too long. If instead I had reminded myself at the outset, you know, you've dedicated the next 30 minutes to get this project done, this chapter done or whatever it is. When your mind wanders, notice that and come back. Don't get pulled into the whole sequence of events that can happen. And the sooner we do that, the sooner we redirect back, the more luck we're going to have staying on task. So we have to constantly be monitoring not just our external environment to not multitask, but the internal environment as well. Hope that I hope that helps. It does. And I <laughs> like the idea of noticing it because so often... We sit down to write an email and then you remember something that you wanted to order on Amazon and then you end up down some rabbit hole of social media. And two hours later, you realize, oh, I sat down to write an email, didn't I? <laughs> and it doesn't get done. So just paying attention to the fact that we do get so distracted and, and to what's distracting us so that we can stay on task, at least for a limited amount of time. You mentioned 30 minutes. Does that seem like a, a doable amount of time for most people if you say, I'm going to work on this project for 30 minutes and then take a break? You know, I can't give anybody a particular amount of time because the micro excursions will start very rapidly. Within within a minute, you're likely to have some kind of tug. So 30 minutes is just the block of time I actually ended up having in my schedule. That's why I mentioned it um, for that particular chunk of chapter I was writing. You, The chances of people being able to do anything uninterrupted for a long period of time uh, without any of these extra tools, including our internal monitoring, is very low. So in addition to like what we just described, being aware moment to moment where your attention is, being very clear on the goal of the moment, not multitasking, but monotasking, those are all really helpful things to do. And then there's one other thing I'd want to just mention, something called cognitive offloading. So it's a, it sounds fancy, but all it is is keep a paper and pencil near you 
So when the urge impulse arises to do something else, literally write it down. Give yourself the permission to offload it out of your working memory, which is this mental scratch space we all use. And that way, the pull will kind of subside because oftentimes what happens if in the middle of writing that email, we think, oh, I got to order that thing online. Well, if I don't do it now, I will forget, right? That is essentially realizing in our own capacity, our working memory vulnerabilities. So working memory is this ability to maintain and manipulate information over just a few to several uh, seconds to maybe about a minute. Whatever it is that we needed to order, we don't need to keep it forever in our minds, just long enough to get the task done. But when you're online in some other website, the chances of you then proliferating to hyperlink to other things are greater. So just literally say for that period of time, we're going to devote to working write it down, and then give yourself permission after that to address all of that. You're not going to disadvantage yourself, but you don't have to take the bait that it needs to be done right now, which fundamentally is driven by feeling a lack of trust in our ability to remember it later. So accept that lack of trust and advantage yourself to have it have it later. So back to your basic question of is 30 minutes a decent amount of time? The amount of time can only be based on how well you're able to monitor what you're doing, because even five minutes can be the wrong amount of time if you don't monitor. Um, but we tend to work in about 30 minute chunks when we schedule our day. So I'm just saying that if that was what it was, implement these practices to advantage yourself. I like that. I like the idea of having a pen and a piece of paper handy so you can write something down because I'll do that yeah, all the easy. time. Or I'll remember something. And I think, oh, this is the third time I've thought of this thing I should do, this quick little task. I keep forgetting to do it in the moment. So then I'm tempted to just do it now to get it over with. But it takes my attention away from whatever it is I'm working on right now. Absolutely. And, you know, it may be the right thing to get it over with in the moment. You just have to make that judgment call yourself. But if you know that you're vulnerable to getting sucked into other things, then maybe resist it by just allowing yourself to write it down. So it's a simple thing, pen and paper nearby, but it can really save your working memory and really uh, prevent, protect you from hijacking your own best intentions to get certain things done. All right. So those those are some helpful tips. And then I know you talk about the the flashlight, obviously, and learning how to bring our brains back to the task that we're on. Can you just walk us through a quick exercise? You talk about 12 minutes a day, but I know you say you don't even start with that. Start with a couple minutes a day, but how to start practicing mindfulness. Yeah. And, you know, mindfulness arose as a topic in my lab because a lot of other strategies, even the ones we just described, often don't work for people if you don't have this fundamental capacity to notice what is going on moment by moment, to have the capacity to pay attention to the here and the now. And if the default tendency is 50% of the time we're mind wandering away uh, and we have all these working memory limitations, it's very likely we'll forget. We'll forget all the stuff we've been talking about and we won't implement in the moment. So what we found was this thing called mindfulness meditation training, which I think probably many people that listen to your podcast have heard about and you've talked about, but I want to just kind of set the stage of what I mean and as it, how it relates to attention because mindfulness has so many different benefits. I mean, it's got mood boosting benefits, stress reduction benefits. But what we're finding is that it actually helps to refuel this important brain system of attention. And so we already described the flashlight, this capacity to focus and direct uh, the willful computational resources of the mind. That's not the only way that attention works. The other way, the other two ways that it actually works are kind of the opposite of a flashlight. Instead of narrowing and constraining, just being broad and receptive. So I call this the floodlight. And essentially it's like, allowing the thing it's privileging is not so much the content, a specific kind of location you might point the flashlight, for example, 
but the time. It privileges what is going on right now. And I, I like the word floodlight because it happened to be what I had over my garage that allowed me to see if any, you know, was it a raccoon or was it a neighbor? What was happening right now? What is going on outside? Uh, that floodlight's very handy to see. But when we think about our mind having that, that floodlight, it's broad, receptive, present-centered, and it's ready for anything that may show up without kind of biasing against being able to see it. Very, very useful. And as you can kind of foreshadow, very much related to that noticing capacity moment by moment. So kind of trying to monitor and keep tabs on what's going on in my internal environment, I can use that mental floodlight and turn it toward my own mind. And then the third way is really something that I think is, we could think of as like a manager of using these two systems, this really narrowing flashlight or really broad floodlight, something called executive control. And executive control is just like the term executive for a company. Its job is to ensure that the goals of a particular period of time and the actions being engaged in that moment align. So if right now my intention is to listen to what you're saying and to have this conversation with you, it would not be in my best interest to satisfy those goals to get on my phone and start texting somebody. That would be counter to what I'm trying trying to get done. And I have to use executive control to inhibit if I do end up getting a text to pick up the phone and start responding. Or I've got to update my goal. Like it's my kid and she needs me to pick her up right now. Then I'm going to say, Amy, I got to go. I got to go do that. So we're constantly using this third system to manage. Are we doing are we using the floodlight and a flashlight in a particular way, floodlight in a particular way? So to go back to your question about a practice, the key for us was, is there something we could train that might exercise all three of these systems, the flashlight, the floodlight, and executive control? And mindfulness training happens to be one of those. So mindfulness in the way that I describe it is this mental mode, a way of making the mind that has to do with paying attention to our present moment experience. So attention's already involved, but it's attention to the here and the now. So you can always see the connection to the floodlight. But it's paying attention in a very specific way. It's paying attention without sort of what we might call elaboration or story making, evaluation or judgment, and even emotional reactivity. So, you know, it's I, I like to think of it as like you're getting the raw data of the experience of, of the experience without any overlay of the interpretation of what that means. So, you know, for example, if you see even an expression on somebody's face and it looks maybe a little uh, the, the for, their their brow is kind of you know constrained. You could say, oh, that person is so mad at me, and that's an interpretation of the actual data. Instead, say, oh, this person is just having a particular kind of facial expression. It could mean this. It could mean that. They could be thinking about something. All of a sudden, the choices open up when we take a mindful orientation. But one of the practices that we use to train all three systems of attention to allow for this mindful mode to happen more often is something called what I call the find your flashlight practice. And, and more plainly, it's just called mindfulness of breath. So we use the breath as an anchor, not so much to control it like you might in a yoga practice, for example, but just to observe what's going on. We don't need to try to breathe. Thankfully, our bodies just breathe. And it's happening all the time. It's an inconspicuous thing we can just focus on. So the practice would be something, and I like you said, about a minute start out with, and you could build up to about 12 minutes. Focus, it, focus that flashlight of your attention on the sensations of breathing and be specific. You could pick whatever you'd like, the you know, abdomen moving up and down, the coolness of air, something that is in your sensory experience tied to breathing, not thoughts about breathing, but just actual data of what is occurring and keep the flashlight there for this period of time. You're going to do the practice. You could close or lower your eyes, whatever people want to choose to minimize distraction. Keep the flashlight there. and then, And then, Notice if your mind wanders away 
from those breath-related sensations. In some sense, you're engaging the floodlight in that moment to say, ha, where is the flashlight right now? Oh, it's over here. It's over there. Get it back to the breath-related sensations. So it's it's focusing on breath-related sensations, noticing mind-wandering, and then that executive control to say, hey, are my goals and my behavior aligned? If not, redirect the flashlight back. So that's just a simple way in which we exercise all three systems and practice actually strengthening them for our benefit later on. So the two big things I hear about mindfulness or meditation that seem to be misconceptions is somebody will say, uh, you should clear your mind. And the other big one I hear is people say, I'm really bad at this. So nothing in what I said in the instructions I just gave say anything about clearing your mind. I don't know why people think that this is something they're supposed to do. If you're awake and conscious and a human being, you can't. Like this mind wandering thing is just what happens. So that's why I actually called it the find your flashlight practice because you want to think of it as a win when you notice your mind has wandered away. Thoughts are not going to stop happening. It's part of the way the mind works. So the first thing is, no, forget that. Drop the project of clearing your mind. Never going to happen. And then I'm bad at it. Well, what are you bad at exactly? You can breathe. You can pay attention. I know that's true for everybody. You can notice what your mind is doing and you can certainly redirect back. So instead of the orientation, in the same way that the first time somebody goes to a gym after probably a long time and and tries to get on a treadmill, if it's a little uncomfortable to walk on the treadmill or lift weights, you don't just say, oh, I'm bad at it. I'm never doing it again. You say, I got to kind of work up to this or I know how it feels. It maybe doesn't always feel easy, but I can certainly do it. So you've got to kind of shift our frame of how we're going to approach this as brain training for our well-being and not worry about whether we're good or bad at it. That's a useless sort of aspect that we're we're loading ourselves up with when we don't need to. So then what are some of the benefits? Let's say we start to practice this. What will we notice in our lives? Well, the first thing, you know, again, as an attention researcher, we'll notice that we are much more aware of where the mind is moment by moment. Initially, it's not going to all be rainbows and sunshine. You might realize, oh my gosh, no matter what I'm doing, I'm like half there. You know, I'm having, I'm in the middle of this important meeting. I may be even giving and leading the meeting. And half the time I'm kind of wandering away. I'm thinking about what somebody thought about what I said, or I'm thinking about what I got to do next. We start noticing the landscape of the mind, which is kind of a wake up call. uh, Because now all of a sudden that number 50% I was saying a moment ago becomes embodied. You realize it. But the second thing that we start noticing after doing it for a while is, ah, but those are plenty of opportunities. Every moment I have where I notice I'm distractible, I can actually do something about it. I can redirect back or I can allow myself to wander wherever the heck I want without feeling kind of guilty about it. So I would say the first experience is getting to know yourself a little bit better, your mind moment by moment. And eventually what you realize, especially if you pursue these suite of practices, we only describe, I only describe one in the book, I describe others that emphasize the floodlight or emphasize the juggler, emphasize kindness. These are all different aspects. We do end up feeling better. And our data suggests that attention improves, that mood is boosted, stress is reduced, and even things like stress-related hormones that can actually eat away at the cellular, our cellular longevity, literally how long our cells are alive, can start actually improving things so that our brain and our bodies are functioning better. So the cascade is very, very powerful, uh, but you have to take the journey. None of this works if you don't work it. And what do you say to people who say things like, well, I, I like to read, but I just don't have the attention span for it anymore? <laughs> I would say, you know, take a look at that. I mean, if you can function in your whole life, like if your child said that to you or a student, in my case, I'd be like, of course you can read. 
you know, what's going on that is protect, preventing you from doing that? Um, you could say, is it something you want to do? You know, we were talking earlier about how a lot of people, even with the new book I have coming out, are choosing to listen to audiobooks. Advantage yourself in whatever way works in your life, but don't feel discouraged that your brain lost the capacity to do something. It's still all here. Look at the factors that are preventing you from doing the things you want to do. Really look at them and see, are these things that are shakable? Can I actually adjust and train for it would be the other piece of advice. Actually train your mind so that you're better able to use these intrinsic capacities that you certainly already hold. And do you think it's true that our attention spans have likely gotten worse during the pandemic? I think that, like I said, attention span as an intrinsic capacity of the human mind has not shifted. But for sure, that experience of cognitive fog that many of us feel is very real. And that's what we see in our data over and over again. You know, in my lab, we study groups like military service members and medical and nursing professionals, first responders over very high stress intervals. And over high stress intervals, attention declines, mood declines, stress levels go up. I think the world ended up experiencing that same collective high stress interval with the pandemic. And we should realize that. So instead of trying to have a goal of like, you know, especially during those early days of quarantine, I'd see all these social media messages of like, I'm going to crush it during this quarantine. I'd be like, no, just kind of take care of yourself and realize the uncertainty and complexity and real threat we can experience with something like a deadly virus is real. And it is affecting our mind. And be kind to yourself in that circumstance instead of pushing against the reality that might be happening. That'll further drive down your ability to pay attention for sure. And what about when we have something really stressful going on in our lives? Maybe it is driving our attention because uh, it's worthy of distracting us. So when we're at work, we're worried about something going on in our personal lives or our home lives. What do you do about that? Right. You know, I think this is very real. And that's why actually, even when I, even when I wrote the, the when I uh, decided of the title of this, my book, Be Peak Mind, I didn't want to give people this impression that And I I try to make it as clear as possible throughout the book that a peak mind is not one in which we never experience fear, grief, sadness, uncertainty, or even ambiguity about a situation, but training the mind so that we can maneuver through those difficult circumstances with more ease instead of working against ourselves. So for example, in the context of a very worthy topic, you know, somebody's injured or there's a complexity that you've got to resolve, of course, these are going to be at play in your mind and they should. But even as you're allowing your mind to troubleshoot, to problem solve, to to come up with better solutions for whatever it is that you're managing, or just the heartache of whatever difficulty may have emerged, watch your mind even in those moments. Befriend your mind in those moments and do things like a formal term for this is is, uh, called decentering, where you're not so fused with the pain or difficulty that you are no longer productively using your mind. So, for example, we can end up in ruminative or catastrophizing kind of mental states where we know we're not getting anywhere. We are looping on the same content over and over again. That is not helping us troubleshoot. It's not helping us problem solve. And it's driving down our mood. Oftentimes, we don't even know we're doing this. But sometimes we wake up to the reality of like, oh, my gosh, I'm just stuck on this conversation I just had or this problem just isn't going away in my mind. And this is where decentering can have a very powerful effect. Essentially, what we're doing is taking kind of a bird's eye view of our our own experience. So we talked about that flashlight of attention and how it can't be in two places at once. In some sense, with decentering, we're taking that flashlight and we're looking at our own mind from the outside. 
And we could even use third person language. Like right now, Mishi's feeling very stuck. She keeps having these thoughts, like a reporter reporting on a scenario that's going on. Now, why is this useful to do? Well, first, first of all, it's going to give you some perspective, like, oh, I am looping. So let's step outside of that and even just say I'm looping, but I'm not in the looping. I'm watching the looping. That helps give a little distance. But the other thing it does is it allows you to realize that those are thoughts I'm having that may or may not be tied to reality. And that's sort of the shorthand way we can talk about uh, this, this whole thing that we're doing, that thoughts are not facts. And once we kind of open ourselves up to that, we might be able to make different choices, maybe get ourselves back onto a real problem-solving approach than being stuck in these states. So it's not so much that our mind isn't going to be drifting to, to really important content, but we can advantage ourselves by even looking at the way we're relating to it uh, to, to work in a better way for our, for our own well-being and to help those around us. That's great stuff. It's some of the things that we've talked about on our podcast, talking about yourself in the third person, again, a little psychological distance or... Yeah to figure out, am I problem solving or am I ruminating? And the difference between those things, because so often our minds just keep replaying things that already happened, stuff that we can't change. And staying stuck in that doesn't necessarily help us. We can't focus on the task because the only time we can change our behavior is right now. You can't go back and say that thing in that conversation that you wish you would have said and replaying that over and over doesn't do you any good. Right. And I would say, you know, I, I know a lot of these tools are things that have been um, mentioned before, and I think they're very helpful. The only thing that I would say I'm adding to it is this notion of trainability of the brain, that these are not only concepts that you can apply, but in the privacy of your quiet time with yourself for up to 12 minutes a day, you can actually strengthen these capacities so they can be available to you on demand in the moment whenever you need them, just like physical strength can be helped by working out every day. You know, we don't, if you want to lift a heavy suitcase when you're in an airplane, that's not the time to get on the ground and start doing push-ups. You want to already have that intrinsic strength within you. And that's what we're doing with mindfulness training. So last question for you. A lot of people come to me these days and say, I'm pretty sure I have ADHD. Or they'll say, I think we all have ADHD today. What's the difference between our normal brains and somebody who actually has a diagnosable ADHD? I mean, I think that, first of all, and you know this, that uh, these capacities, all these systems of attention, there's individual differences and there's susceptibility to degradation under certain circumstances. So we know, for example, that circumstances that are protracted and are high stress, high demand, threatening, um, fear-inducing, or produce a negative mood, that's going to all cause the flashlight to get more wobbly, the floodlight to be hypervigilant and the executive control system to start falling apart. And this is just gonna happen regardless of your set point. Some people have uh, sort of different set points along all three of these systems so that their functioning works pretty well in their lives and other people have it so that it does not work well. And it could be hyper fixating or lack of fixating. It could be broad receptive stance or too broad or not broad enough. So just to get a sense that this is like part of the mix of all of us. Um, but certain set points across all systems and how they work together can be problematic. And I would say the difference is when it causes functional challenges in your life, and that can cascade into mood challenges as well, then it's something to really pay attention to. Now, for many people, it may be temporary. And no, when you're no longer stressed or have that level of demand, you may bounce back to your kind of normal level of, of functioning. For others, it may be so severe that you need some other kind of support. And it ends up these same tools of mindfulness training, you know, complemented by certain kinds of pharmaceuticals in some cases can really help because what we're trying to develop with this is not just a better 
better ability to engage all three systems of attention. But this other concept of, of you know, to use another kind of technical term, meta-awareness, our awareness of what is happening moment to moment, which unfortunately no medication is going to give you, that you have to cultivate within yourself. But so if you do that, and we found this in our studies with adults with ADD who have been partaking in mindfulness training, if you actually have more meta-awareness, you will catch yourself when the attentional set point is not working for you in the moment. And then you have the choice to do something differently. I like that. And the conversations about flashlights and floodlights and attentional set points, really helpful to put it into context. So Dr. Amishi Jha, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. And um, I hope that everybody goes out and gets a copy of Peak Mind, whether they listen to the audiobook version or they buy the hardcover <laughs> copy. I want people to have this information because I do feel like we're it's something that we all struggle with these days. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Jaw's strategies and give you some quick tips on how you can apply them to your own life. Number one, modify your environment. Thought it was interesting that Dr. Jaw says our attention spans aren't actually getting worse. We just have more things to distract us. Your social media apps are designed to grab your attention. We also have email, online shopping, and the internet available at all times. So it's tough to find the self-discipline you need to get things done. So I like that Dr. Jaw talked about the importance of modifying your environment. Whether that means you turn off your apps, you put the phone in another room, or you just disconnect your laptop from Wi-Fi. Remove the distractions that are vying for your attention. Then work on your task for a specific period of time, whether that's 10 minutes or 30 minutes. Number two, avoid multitasking. We tend to think we'll get more done by doing two things at once. But Dr. Jaw says research shows multitasking makes us less efficient. But you've probably heard that before. And you probably also assumed that you were the exception to the rule. But remember, Dr. Jaw says constantly switching our attention back and forth between tasks requires a lot of extra time and mental energy. Consider that the next time you're tempted to reply to emails when you're on a phone call. Or the next time you try to finish a report while you're also watching a TV show. Focus on one task at a time whenever you can. Even if it's something simple that doesn't require too much attention, try focusing on that task. You might find that you'll become better able to pay attention when you aren't trying to multitask all the time. And number three, practice mindfulness. I like that Dr. Jaw said you can train your brain in just 12 minutes a day. I liked it even more that she said you can start out with just a couple of minutes of mindfulness a day. There are lots of ways to learn mindfulness. Dr. Jaw talked briefly about just paying attention to your breathing and noticing what happens to your body as you breathe. I also liked her analogy about the flashlight and how it's up to you to decide where you focus your attention. There are lots of other mindfulness strategies that you can use as well. If you're interested in learning more, check out episode number 86, four simple strategies that can help you live in the moment. In that episode, I walk you through four different mindfulness exercises. You can also find mindfulness teachers online. There are YouTube videos, apps, and audio recordings that can walk you through mindfulness exercises. And of course, Dr. Jaw's book will teach you everything you need to learn about how to become more mindful. So those are three of Dr. Jaw's strategies that can help improve your attention span. Modify your environment, avoid multitasking, and practice mindfulness for a few minutes every day. If you want to learn more of Dr. Jaw's methods for improving your attention, pick up a copy of her book, Peak Mind. It's available everywhere right now, and it's filled with lots of helpful tips that can help you stay focused. 
Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.